The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Well, this morning, I do want to deal with this issue of God's thoughts. And in previous years, I've been able to introduce you to replacement theology, the historical uh, nature of replacement theology, how it has come to dominate so much of what is called the Christian church today. And as I refer to church, please understand, I'm going to refer to it in its broadest sense. I'm going to give it kind of a Jewish definition, which would be any group that identifies with Jesus Christ, including those that we would not uh, understand to be Christian today, the Catholic, the Orthodox, and many of them, the liberal um, mainline Protestant churches, I'll include when I refer to church today. But uh, replacement theology uh, is this theology sometimes referred to as supersessionism that really holds to the belief that God has replaced or superseded, that's where the word supersessionism comes from, ethnic or national or physical Israel, the Jewish people, those terms are all pretty much interchangeable with the church. So the idea is that God has unplugged Israel from his plan and inserted the church in Israel's place, all because Israel rejected Jesus Christ when he was here during his first advent. Therefore, God is judging and punishing the Jewish people by taking away all of the promises that were given in the covenants in the Old Testament, uh, taking them away from the Jewish people and giving them to the church. Replacement theology has a number of really unfortunate implications. First of all, if you believe in replacement theology, you're going to argue that the church began with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, not with uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And so they simply see the church as a continuation of Old Testament Israel. There's also the belief that the church today is true or spiritual Israel, and that's how they refer to, to the church. They're redefining the term Israel in the scriptures and assigning the church the title of true or spiritual Israel. So whenever you hear someone who holds the replacement theology refer to true Israel or spiritual Israel, they're talking about the church, not the Jewish people. Also, they believe that the church inherits all of the spiritual promises of the covenants, but of course the Jewish people keep all the curses. Which is pretty incredible when you begin to unpack that because what they're really saying is that the Jewish people are still part of the covenant, but only the cursing part of the covenant. Remember when God made his covenants with the Jewish people, uh, he said, if you keep and obey me, then here are the blessings that will come upon you. But if you disobey me, here are the curses. And so they believe all those promises come to the church, but uh, the Jewish people keep all the curses. And so Their belief is that God will fulfill all those promises through the church. So when you ask them about what about the promise of the land, they don't see that as a physical promise. They see it as a spiritual promise and that God is going to give to the church all the blessings. Some of them explained it as uh, the land promise being a promise of the new heavens and the new earth. So therefore, it is their belief that the Old Testament law still applies to the church. If the church is simply a continuation of the Old Testament, then the law must still apply. And by the way, that is how, if you ever wonder how the church that began in Jerusalem ends up by the 4th century uh, to begin taking on concepts like pastors or priests, and that, that uh, people still need an intercessory before God, infant baptism, which is the idea that, that children are saved or placed under the covenant of God through the act of baptism, um, having an altar in the front of the church, all come out of this belief that the Old Testament law still applies. The Ten Commandments becomes very important to them. It's the Decalogue. Um, and it is what they build so much of their ecclesiology around. 
And what we're being told today by replacement theologians is in order to understand the Old Testament, you first have to understand the New Testament. And once you come to understand that, that the church and Israel are synonymous words, then you go back in the Old Testament and begin interpreting the Old Testament. And therefore, they give completely different meaning to much of the Old Testament than what we understand it to be as we take it simply, literally, and as God progressively revealed it. Their conclusion is this, that God has no future plans for national or physical Israel. God has no future plans for the Jewish people as a nation, is another way to say that. So therefore, they see no uh, reason to have the 70th week of Daniel literally fulfilled. Uh, They believe the 70th week of Daniel, we refer to as the tribulation period here on earth. They don't believe in a future tribulation period, nor do they believe in a literal millennial kingdom yet to come. Uh, most that hold a replacement theology today would argue that the church is the kingdom of God that was promised in the scriptures. All of this replacement theology begins in the second and third century of the church because of a growing resentment that grew up in the church against the Jewish people. But here's the thing. Replacement theology has had this far-reaching impact upon the church. It is historically the position of the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches as well as the Reformation churches. Um, so the pro- mainline Protestant churches pretty much all endorse replacement theology. When, when the great uh, men of faith who stood against the Catholic Church and began the Protestant Reformation movement, uh, they were not taking a stand against replacement theology. They brought that with them as they stepped out of the Catholic Church. Uh, and so it is held today by Reformed and Covenant churches uh, around the world. And it has led to countless acts of anti-Semitism now. We would like to think that because of the Holocaust and World War II and all that has occurred, that anti-Semitism has been on a decline since the end of World War II. But I have to tell you, the realities today is that anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head again, and we're seeing it coming back with, with growing furor against the Jewish people. You may not have read this in your newspaper, but just about a month ago, the World Council of Churches, which represents 590 million worshipers around the world, held a four-day conference in Greece, in in the city of Volos, that was called the Conference on Peace in the Middle East. Now, that would, this conference in, involved not only Catholics and Orthodox, but also mainline Protestants and Coptics, out of, Christians out of Egypt. What was interesting to note was they didn't issue a single word of criticism against the Arab Muslims in the Middle East, even though they're persecuting Arab Christians who believe in Jesus. But here's what they did find time to do. They declared the Jewish state to be a sin and an occupying power. They theologically dismantled the chosenness of the Jewish people and called for resistance against the nation of Israel as a Christian duty. They denied the 3,000 years of Jewish life in the land. They basically denied that the Jewish people ever lived in the land since Jacob took uh, his family down to Egypt. Uh, They took sides against the very presence of the nation of Israel in the land today. They invoked the name of God against Israel's um, presence in the West Bank and in the state of Israel. They conceptually dismissed the Jewish state. Uh, They referred to the Jewish state as simply a mixture of Islamic and Christians in the land with maybe just a little bit of Jewish flavor. And they even legitimized terrorism, uh, calling for the resistance to the evil occupation of the Jewish people in the land as a Christian right and duty. My friends, that is anti-Semitism. 
Israel has a right to land because God gave Israel the right to land. And in fact, within, the, uh, within all of human history, it is the only nation that God has endorsed and specified a piece of land for them to dwell in. But it wasn't just this conference where we see anti-Semitism growing and, and reviving in the world and amongst Christian circles. Uh, the patriarch of the Antioch Church, the Catholic Melchite Gregory III Laum, proclaimed recently that there is a Zionist conspiracy against Islam. He wants to defend Islam, and he's attacking Zionism. Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to live in the land. They have a right to govern themselves as their own nation in that land. They have a sovereign right. If you believe that, you are a Zionist. And they believe that Zionism is a conspiracy against Islam. There's a Catholic school in Antwerp, Belgium, called the College of the Sacred Heart. It's a well-respected school that recently hosted a Palestinian day. Uh, And it was replete with anti-Semitic references. Uh, They set up like a little fair. They had booths there. One of the booths that they set up was titled, Throw the Soldiers into the Sea. And they had little soldiers that that, uh, represented the Israel Defense Forces in a pool of water. And they had children taking those soldiers and throwing them into the pool of water as a symbol of what they'd like to see Israel pushed into the sea. And this goes on. The the, uh, Christian peace movements that are popular today are promoting the boycott of Israel's goods in the name of love. And there is a Vatican magazine. I don't know Italian. I never studied Italian, so I'm probably not going to get this right, but it's La Civilta Catolica. And uh, they, back in January of this year, published an editorial where they declared that the refugees, those are the Arabs who fled Israel during the wars and are in, in camps today, and the Arabs will not permit them to come back into Israel. They declared that the refugees are a consequence of ethnic cleansing by Israel and that the Zionists cleverly were able to exploit the Western sense of guilt for the Shoah. The Shoah is another name for the Holocaust uh, to lay a foundation for their own state. This is what uh, replacement theology is doing in churches today. It is leading men to conclude that Israel does not have a right to exist today. Uh, There was a synod in Rome in which they denied the Jewish people's biblical right to the promised land. They said, quote, We Christians cannot speak about the promised land for the Jewish people. There is no longer a chosen people. This is their belief. And their belief, they they hold, comes out of Scripture. And so this morning I want to take you into uh, the New Testament because if replacement theology is true, we would not... expect to find God teaching it in the Old Testament, but we would certainly expect to find clear teaching in the New Testament that God has replaced Israel. So here's our standard. We're going to use a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation of the New Testament passages we're going to look at this morning, which means we're going to take them simply for what they say within the historical context they were said and within the grammatical context of the verses And here's what we would expect to find if the New Testament teaches replacement theology. We'd expect God to clearly say that he has rejected Israel. We'd also uh, expect to find the passages that definitively teach that the church is the replacement of Israel and God's plan. We would expect to see that God says he excludes Israel from his covenants. And finally, If replacement theology is true, if God is done with Israel, 
then there should be no verses in the New Testament that talk about a future for the nation of Israel. So let's take a look at some of the passages that replacement theologians take us to to try to demonstrate that replacement theology is a valid theology. We're going to begin with the words of Christ in Matthew 21, 43. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Jesus was speaking to the Jewish people, and he talks about the kingdom of God being taken away. Replacement theologians tell us that Christ is making two points here. First of all, the nation of Israel has been permanently rejected by God. The kingdom's been taken away from them, so that they see as a rejection by God, and that the nation to whom the kingdom will be given is the church. Therefore, they conclude that the church becomes the new Israel and the true people of God. And so we want to ask the question, is this really what God is teaching here in this passage when Christ spoke these words? Well, to understand what what Jesus Christ was really saying, what God was teaching, we need to, first of all, ask the question, who was Jesus talking to? Some would argue he was only speaking to the religious leaders when he said it would be taken away from you and given to another nation, the kingdom of God. And certainly, uh, verse 45, two verses later, would support that because the religious leaders, as they were talking amongst themselves, Uh, fully believed that Jesus was speaking directly to them when he said these words. But I think it's more likely that Jesus was speaking more than just to the religious leaders uh, of the Jewish people. I think he was speaking to the whole nation. And yet, he was not rejecting the nation of Israel permanently. That's not what he was teaching. We know that because two chapters later, we see that Jesus teaches that God certainly has a future for the nation of Israel. Over in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, he talks about how the current nation of Israel is going to be judged. It's that passage where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets and stoned those that I sent to you. And how I've desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. Remember that passage? And he goes on to say that there is a future day coming. In fact, he says, You will not see me again when I leave as, as he leaves with his resurrection and, and leaves with his advent back to heaven, he says, when I leave, you will not see me again until th- there is a future nation that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Great text that, that proclaims the coming of Messiah. And so he fully believed there would be a future Jewish people, a future Jewish nation that would hail him as their Lord and Messiah. So Jesus is not teaching here that God is rejecting Israel at all. What is he really saying here? Well, keep in mind that nowhere in Scripture do we see the church referred to as a nation. And so the church, in fact, if you, if you look at Scriptures, the church is not a nation, but it's made up of people of what? Many nations, right? The church includes people from many nations, I believe the nation that Jesus speaks to in this verse in Matthew 21, he is referring to a future nation of Israel. Think about this. When Jesus was here during his ministry, he really preached uh, two forms of the gospel, if you will. During the first part of his ministry, his message was directed at the Jewish people. And his message was simply this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was making a legitimate offer of ushering back to this earth God's restored kingdom that God promised through the prophets. The only thing keeping that from happening was the repentance of the Jewish people. When he sends his apostles out 
uh, to preach the gospel into all the villages and communities in Israel, that's the message they're told to preach. And yet the Jewish people as a nation reject that message. Very few Jewish people believe in that message. And so what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 21, 43 is simply this. And by the way, after that point, throughout the remainder of Jesus' ministry, his, his message of the gospel is directed to the whole world, and it is simply uh, repent and, uh, and your sins will be forgiven. And so from that point on, we see a different, really, message of the gospel. It's the same gospel, but it's directed to the world. And there is no offer of the kingdom in that gospel. So what is Jesus saying here? In Matthew 21, 43, I think what he's saying to the Jewish people is this generation of Jewish people will not see the kingdom because you've rejected it. But there will be a future nation of Israel. And I think the reason he picks the word nation there rather than generation is because he understands what is about to happen. He knows the Jewish people are going to be scattered and then eventually brought back to land to reformulate as a nation again. And so he's saying there is a future day when you will be a nation in this land when there will be this generation, this future generation, that will receive the kingdom because they will do the fruit of the kingdom. They will bear the fruit of the kingdom. Jesus is not teaching that God has rejected Israel. God will take the kingdom away and give it to a future Jewish people bearing kingdom fruit. One of the apostles, uh, the writings of Paul, are commonly used to argue for replacement theology. And one of the verses that they use as much as anything is Galatians 6.16. Paul says, And as many as walk according to this rule, and in case you're wondering what rule he's talking about, he's talking about faith alone in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, For as many as believe that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else added, to them be peace and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Replacement theologians tell us that the Israel of God here refers to the church. And and in order to do this, they have to argue for a certain understanding of the word uh, and in that verse. And so I'm going to give you a couple of Greek lessons this morning. There's no extra charge for these. All right? Uh, Your first Greek lesson is the word and, where he says, and the Israel of God. The word and is a Greek word chi. Normally translated and. It's normally a connective word that puts two things together. Replacement theologians argue that in this case it should be an explicative case translated even, not and. So therefore, blessings upon those who live according to this rule, even the Israel of God, is another way of redefining what he's saying about the people who believe in Jesus Christ alone. So therefore they say um, God has... uh, redefine the church as the Israel of God. And, and they argue that Galatians speaks to the unity of all ethnic believer groups. And so therefore, Israel of God refers to all believers. But is that really what God is saying here? Well, first of all, this explicative case, trying to translate the chi as even rather than and, is a very uncommon usage. You would not translate it with that usage unless the grammar uh, would argue for that. And here the grammar really argues for the use of the word as and, where you're talking about something and something else, or something and something that's a part of something. So what Paul is really doing here is defending that salvation is by grace alone, through faith. What was occurring in the church in Galatians is that there were these Judaizers who had showed up and said, you're not a true believer unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're circumcised. They were trying to put Gentile believers back under the law. 
And so Paul is speaking against the Judaizers who taught that circumcision was required for salvation, who were adding works to faith. And so he uses this reference to the Israel of God to contrast the true Jewish believers from those Jewish people who claimed to be believers but were believing in a salvation that was faith plus works. You know, it's interesting in all the other passages where Paul writes about Israel and uses the term Israel, he's always referring to national or ethnic Israel. So it certainly would make no sense here that he suddenly uses the term to refer to the whole church when elsewhere it always refers to the Jewish people. But let me tell you that this verse does not in any way say that God has replaced Israel. You will not find replacement words in this verse. Even if you hold to replacement theology, the best you can argue here is that Gentiles are now part of the term Israel. There's two other verses in Galatians chapter 3 that are often used as well by replacement theologians to argue that God teaches replacement theology. The first, both of them are found in chapter 3. The first one, verse 7, says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Sons there is the key word. And secondly, in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so those in the replacement theology camp instruct us that the sons of Abraham and Abraham's seed there infer that the church has become true Israel. Notice they're inferring this. It doesn't really say that in those verses. But they believe that the believers are spiritual Jews because they're sons of Abraham and Abraham's seed. Therefore, they argue that Abraham's seed means that believers are related to Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and, and that this proves that the church has become the true Israel of God. We ask the same question again, what is God really saying? Is he teaching replacement theology here? Well, let me ask you this question. Is it possible to be related to Abraham and not be Jewish? Or let me ask you another question. Is it possible, or no, let me back up. Was Abraham Jewish? How many think Abraham is Jewish? I know in a group like this, you hate to put your hand up. If Abraham is Jewish, then all of his descendants are Jewish, including Ishmael, including all the children that he had after Sarah died. That means many of the Arabs today in the Middle East would be Jewish. Was Abraham Jewish? No, he was not. He is the father of the Jewish people. What does it mean to be Jewish? To be Jewish, you need to be a physical descendant of the promise. It's the promise that made the people of Israel Jewish. It is the promise. So beginning with Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons that all get the blessing of the promise, they are the Jewish people. All right? So the point is that you can be called a son or an heir of Abraham and not be Jewish. You can't just assume that because the Scriptures use those terms that you are now uh, referred to as Israel. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, Paul teaches that Abraham is the father of both the uncircumcised Gentiles and the circumcised Jew. So, some descendants of Abraham are Jewish, and some are not. These verses do not teach replacement theology. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from man, but from God. 
He is not a Jew who is on outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. Replacement theologians grab this verse and say the term Jew has been changed to include Gentile believers. Being a true Jew is not an ethnic test, but is based upon an inward commitment. That's what these verses teach, they argue. And so therefore, this provides in their eyes the term Israel to no longer mean just the nation of Israel, but God is redefining that term in terms of all those who truly believe. When we ask our question, what is God really saying, and begin to look at this verse, we come to a different conclusion. First of all, this verse is in the middle of a passage that begins in the middle of chapter 2 and goes on through verse 20 of chapter 3, in which Paul is speaking about the Jewish people. Gentiles are not in view in these verses. So therefore, all he's saying is a true Jew is, is a Jewish person who trusts in God through faith. These verses don't teach that the Gentiles are spiritual Jews. He's not talking about Gentiles here. He's talking about the Jewish people and those who truly believe. And he is making this distinction between physical Jews who are Jewish by birth and spiritual Jews, those who are not only physically born Jewish, but also have put their faith in Jesus Christ. There's another similar verse in the ninth chapter of Romans where Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Once again, our replacement theologians want to tell us that Paul is making a distinction here between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, where spiritual or true Israel is made up of all believers, including Gentiles. And Paul implies that true Israel are those who are spiritually related to Abraham, and not those physically related to him. So let's ask this question again. What is God really teaching? Is he teaching replacement theology through this verse? Well, Paul here is really teaching that there is simply a spiritual Israel inside physical Israel. Once again, he does not have the Gentiles in view here. That basically he is referring to the believing Jewish remnant that God keeps alive in every generation. If you will, it would be like... If I drew a big circle here that represented the Jewish people, he's simply saying within this big circle of Jewish people, there is a smaller circle of true believers that are Jewish. And so he's just making a contrast or a distinction here. But what this verse does not say, nor the verse back in Romans 2, neither one of them say that God has replaced Israel. That terminology is nowhere in these verses. Then we come to another verse that's problematic for replacement theologians, Romans eleven twenty six where uh, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. They have to deal with the issue of what does Paul mean in that, in that verse. And so they give us three possible interpretations that all Israel refers to the elect, both the Jew and the Gentile. But that's really problematic based on the context of the passage. So then they will argue that all Israel refers to just the elect from the Jewish people. But once again, we run into a problem that the word all is there, and all means something more than just a subgroup. And so thirdly, they will offer to us that all Israel here refers to a future time when a majority of the Jewish people are converted into the church. What is God really saying? Well, first of all, let's note that there are 10 other references in Romans 9 to 11. And we, as we study the book of Romans, Romans 9 through 11 are chapters that deal rather uh, uh, centrally with the Jewish people. Whenever Paul refers to Israel in these chapters and every other occurrence, it always means physical Israel, the Jewish people. And so we would have to conclude that verse 26 refers only to the Jewish people. It does not refer to Gentiles in any way. 
Secondly, the grammar really argues for a sequence of events. There is a period of Jewish spiritual blindness while God is uh, taking his salvation to the Gentiles, and then he concludes that there is a time when all of Israel will be saved. So God declares that there is a future for Israel in this verse. One last passage I want to take you to that replacement theologians like to use. And there are other passages in Scripture. We don't have time to go through them all this morning. And that's why you may want to purchase one of those books I mentioned this morning. But here is a, another passage that replacement theologians love to, to run to. And that's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, where Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Replacement theologians tell us that Peter uses this Old Testament descriptive, all those descriptive terms come out of the Old Testament. He's using this Old Testament descriptive language of Israel to identify the church. And therefore, God is redefining the concept of Israel as the church. Consequently, Peter is teaching that the church has become new Israel, according to replacement theologians, and that God's chosen people are now spiritual descendants, not physical descendants. They see this as a transition verse. But we ask this question once again, what is God really saying here? Is this what God is teaching? Consider this. First of all, Peter was likely addressing just Jewish believers. You know, where does the early church begin? The church begins where? Jerusalem. And the initial membership of the church is predominantly Jewish. And it's during this period of time that uh, the different epistles are written, the books of the New Testament. It would not be unusual that some of the apostles would write letters or books or address part of their books to the Jewish believers. That was their people. They wrote the scriptures. They would have a burden. Peter is an apostle to the Jews. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2. And in the first verse of this book of First Peter, he says that he is writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, the dispersion would be those who were dispersed out into the Roman Empire. That does not describe the Gentile people, but it does describe the Jewish people. As persecution came to the church in Jerusalem, uh, the church and the Jewish people were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And so it's very obvious here that that Peter is addressing uh, Jewish believers. In addition to that, throughout his book, he quotes the Septuagint a number of times, which is not something you would do if you're writing to Jewish believers, or to Gentile believers, but certainly something you would do uh, in speaking to Jewish believers. And Paul's, or Peter's arguments here would be very hard for Gentiles to understand and comprehend, but very easy for Jewish readers. So it was natural For Peter to use Old Testament titles of Israel to speak to Jewish believers, to call them out for what the Scripture defines them to be. There is no reference that Peter's readers are new Israel or a new people of God. And what's also missing is any statement that God has replaced Israel. See, Peter isn't teaching Jewish replacement here. The best, even if you want to take the replacement theology interpretation, is simply that Gentiles are included in this section. What is missing from all of these passages is a statement that God is finished with Israel, a declaration that God has replaced Israel, or God saying in any way that the church has taken Israel's place. The most these passages teach, if you want to hold to the interpretation of replacement theologians, is that the Gentile church is included with references to Israel. That's inclusion, not exclusion. 
And uh, because of God's grace, we know that we participate in the spiritual blessings of Israel through the covenants that God made with, God, with Abraham and his descendants. But that does not make us as Gentiles Jewish. What does God say about Israel's future? You, you recall that I said to you the, the, the fourth thing there that we would expect to find if God teaches replacement theology is no reference to a future of Israel in the New Testament. Does God say anything about the future of Israel? Well, first of all, I would argue that Christ was premillennial in his theology. Remember back in Matthew chapter 6 where he's teaching his disciples how to pray. He begins with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, what's the next thing he says? Your kingdom come. He teaches them that they should be praying for God's restored kingdom here on earth to come. Why does he want them to pray for that? He tells them. So that... God's will will be done where? On earth. And how will we know that God's will is being done on earth? The standard you measure that against is how God's will is done in heaven, as it is in heaven. Okay, so look around today. As you view this earth, do you think God's will is being done here on earth today? When, when gay couples are being married in New York City this weekend... When violence is striking in Norway the end of the week, is God's will being done on earth today as it is in heaven? Absolutely not. We can only conclude when we look at history, there has been no period of time since the fall of man when God's will has been done throughout the earth as it is in heaven. This is yet to come. But Jesus said pray for it. He would be less than honest and genuine if he told him to pray for something that was not going to occur. Do you know the nation of Israel and the promise of the land are vital to establishing God's kingdom here on earth? One of the reasons I can, I can say that is because in the Old Testament, God gave a covenant to King David. The covenant was that he would have a descendant who would come to the, sit on his throne. The throne of David is the throne over the Jewish people, the nation of Israel here on earth. And then when, when that descendant came to the throne, he would sit upon that throne in perpetuity forever. So Christ has to sit on the throne of David. And by the way, that throne is not in heaven. Nowhere in Scripture does it define the throne of David as being in heaven. It is an earthly throne. Jesus Christ has never ascended to that throne. That must yet be future. And if the nation of Israel does not exist, he cannot sit on a throne over a people that do not exist. means that Israel is central and key to the future that God has described here on earth. And Jesus backs that up in Matthew chapter 29. There's this wonderful passage where Peter says to Christ, you know, what about our future? We've given up everything to follow you. So what's our future? And Jesus answers Peter and says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, each of you will sit upon a throne on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. So their retirement plan is to be sitting over the tribes of Israel. But I'd like to unpack this, work back through this verse to tell you the significance of what Jesus is saying here. When he says the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. He's speaking about himself. So he says, when I sit upon the throne of my glory... That throne is the throne in Jerusalem. That throne is the throne of David that was promised to him. That throne is the throne from which he will rule over not only the nation of Israel, but the entire earth. 
But I want to back you up just a little bit further. In that day, he defines that day as being in the regeneration. Regeneration here is a compound Greek word. Two Greek words put together. Palin Genesia. Palin Genesia. Not Sarah Palin, but spelled the same way. Palin simply means to go back to something that existed before. Back again. Genesia is the Greek word for Genesis. This is your second Greek lesson this morning. He's saying in that time where we go back again to Genesis, the way it was before the fall, he's talking about the restored kingdom here on earth. Then he sits upon his throne of glory. The apostles certainly believed what Christ taught there because when we get over to Acts chapter 1, when Christ meets them together, what's the first thing they ask him? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to who? Not the church. To Israel. They're not thinking of the church. They're thinking of their own people. And they're wondering, since Christ has come back from the dead, is this now the time? They fully believed. They were premillennial. They believed that Jesus would restore the kingdom of God here to earth, and they believed that it would be to Israel to whom it was restored, and that makes them premillennial. And then we get over to Acts chapter 3, a particular apostle, Peter, who is teaching. He understands this, folks. And listen to what he's teaching. He's up on the, the portico, Solomon's porch there on the Temple Mount. So he's speaking to Jewish people. We know he's speaking to Jewish people because when you look at the verses that come right before it, it's clear it's a Jewish audience. Not only that, but where he's at means it's a Jewish audience. And he says this, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. He is saying, Repent. He's saying to the Jewish people, repent. If you will today repent, if all the Jewish people will repent and accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Lord and Savior and be converted, then first of all, their sins are going to be blotted out. And once their sins are blotted out, this will allow Jesus Christ to return from earth so that the times of refreshing can come from the Lord and that the Lord will send Jesus Christ back to earth so that... Um, at the time of restoration of all things will come, which were spoken of by the prophets, if you continue to read in that verse. But he says, Jesus Christ is in heaven who must receive him until these times come. The key to Jesus Christ returning is the salvation of the Jewish people. That is what Peter is teaching. Peter was premillennial. He believed Jesus was going to return. and He believed that he would bring with him that God would establish the restored kingdom here on earth. One last place I'll take you, and then we'll close up the session this morning, is over to Romans chapter 11. God says that he has not cast away the Jewish people. If you need a clear verse, not only do we not, not find any verses that God says he's replaced Israel or he's rejected Israel or that he's done with Israel, but Paul answers it definitively this way when he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And his response is... Absolutely not. God forbid. Certainly not. It cannot happen. And so when we get to Romans eleven twenty six, Paul says that after this period of salvation that has come to the Gentiles is over, then all of Israel will be saved. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We cannot stand and say that God is done with Israel because God is the faithful God who keeps his covenants. 
Steve spoke last night about the covenants of God, but the faithfulness, the fulfillment of those covenants is not based on man's obedience. It's based upon God's faithfulness. We can take those covenants to the bank because we know God is a faithful God. He is the God who keeps his covenant. He is a God who would do everything he says he do, and he will do it because he is a God who is demonstrating throughout all of history that he is the one, the true, the only high and holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there is no way we can ever conclude that you teach replacement theology because it does not exist in your scriptures. In fact, just the opposite. You teach that Israel is key, is important, is necessary for the fulfillment of your plan of redemption here upon earth. Lord, we take great encouragement in knowing that you have promised that this world will not continue as it is, but there is a time coming when you will restore this world to the pre-sin condition, when you will establish Jesus Christ upon uh, the throne of David in Jerusalem from where he will reign over not only Israel but the whole earth. And that that is a day that you have established in a time period here on earth because it is your plan and not man's. Regardless of what man says today, you are a God who will be faithful to keep and do all that you've declared you'll do. And we praise and honor you for that. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.